Anyhow, good morning. It's nice to be together. And today we're starting chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians. And this is kind of, we're really coming down to home stretch. 10 through 13 now, Paul is addressing his critics and detractors and, and so on somewhat, I mean, very directly. And, and, and it's going to end with a major call for repentance. Okay? But let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for another Sunday to gather with, with our redeemed brothers and sisters in Christ to pray together, to fellowship together, to sit under the teaching of the Word of God together, and to encourage and admonish one another, and Lord, all to the end that we might bring glory to your holy name. And we pray, Lord, that you would glorify yourself by working graciously in our lives, and we pray that you would uh, bless those people around the world who listen in and who are lacking the fellowship that they really want and, and long for. I pray that you'd raise up churches for your remnant of people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, to Corinthians 10. This gets a little denser here. There's a, more theological concepts. Let me read 1 through 5 and make a few comments about how it's often misinterpreted and then go back to 1 and get down in the more detail. Now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold towards you when absent, I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence with, with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our war- warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses, for the destroying of speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, and we're ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. Now, this section has often been cited as some sort of um, discussion about spirits and, and demons and principalities and powers and so on. And in some way it is, because behind all opposition to the gospel, one will find spiritual evil. And the God of this world is the one who blinds the eyes of the people that don't see the gospel. That's, that much is true. But the warfare Paul is discussing here, using a siege metaphor, the terms in the Greek would be that of a siege of a city. Okay? And the war that he's talking about waging is against the false teachers and their ideas, not against spirits. Although, as I said, there's always a spiritual dimension to all false teaching. So he is addressing a criticism that has arisen. And I don't apologize for this. I just have to do it. The only way to explain Second Corinthians is to continually reset the stage because... The whole book has to do with Paul's dealings with people who are in opposition to him and who have muddied the waters for the gospel there in Corinth. And so he just has to deal with it. And so we need to know what's going on behind the scene or we can't interpret the passage. So what's happened, as you know, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 
to correct errors in the church. There were conflicts. There were people that were against Paul. You can see that all the way through there. And he wrote the severe letter that we don't have. And there was some repentance, but evidently there are still these super apostles who are, who are his opponents. And Paul had not come there when he said he was going to come to Corinth. And you see that earlier in Second Corinthians. So he wrote a letter instead. So the criticism is this. They're saying Paul is cowardly because he writes these strong, bold letters rebuking us, but he's too timid to come and face the music, to deal with us face to face. That's what they're saying, okay? And Paul is, they're misinterpreting his motives. The reason he didn't come and deal with it face to face was he was, he thought that would be more damaging than for them to get the letter, have Titus go, and hopefully if there's repentance before he gets there, it can be a tender meeting and not a severe one. But because he had pastoral care, pastoral concern, and love for the people there, the false teachers looked at that as an opportunity to attack him, to, to claim that he has bad motives, to portray him as weak and cowardly, and say, he writes bold letters, but in person he's unimpressive. He's, uh, he's nobody in particular that you have to pay attention to. So what is going to happen here in chapters 10 through 13, as we finish Second Corinthians, is that Paul now addresses his opponents, rebuts their criticism of him, and he's going to call them to repentance. There are still two issues out there that still need repentance. One is those who regard Paul as unspiritual. Two, those who engage in immorality with the local cults. Those are two major issues, and they both need repentance. The immorality and the people who say Paul is not spiritual. But when I first read Gordon Fee's commentary on 1 Corinthians probably over 20 years ago. I know it was at least in the late 80s. That was a revolutionary book, that commentary, because it helped me understand Corinthians. And it was shocking to me to find out that what was going on even in 1 Corinthians was Paul addressing people who told Paul he wasn't spiritual. Paul was not spiritual enough for the Corinthians. Okay? He wasn't eloquent enough, and he wasn't spiritual enough. And they had these super apostles that made Paul look like he wasn't much. Now, Paul's willing to admit that he's not as eloquent as some. He's willing to admit that one. But he won't back down one bit from the content of what his message is. And whether he is as eloquent as the trained sophists and traveling philosophers that they maybe were fond of, he says that he has a message of the cross that's divinely powerful. And the truth of the gospel is where the power is. The power, when Paul talks about power in Corinthians, he's talking about the gospel. All right? Even as in Romans where he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God unto salvation. So he's going to rebut these guys. 
a little preview of where we're going in, in 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 12, 13 is the fool speech. It's called the fool speech. Paul will go into his fool speech. He, he says, well, I become a fool and you compelled me. <laughs> and his fool speech is where Paul actually defends himself by, by showing that he's had experiences very much like what these false apostles claim to have had and even better ones, and, and he would prefer not to even talk about these things. So he, that's the fool speech. And then, in, and then in, he's going to end with a call for repentance. So that's where this is the big picture of where we're going. Now, verse 1. Now I, Paul, myself, notice he uses a strong appeal, an emotional appeal, um, uh, by saying, I, Paul, myself, emphatically, Urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold when absent. Now, there's, this is a response to their criticism. All right? This, he writes us a big, strong letter, but he's just meek. He's just a little pussycat. We don't have to worry about Paul. And Paul points out to them that Christ was meek. All right? And so, the, what they see as a character defect, Paul sees as Christ-likeness. They see it as timidity. Paul sees it as Christ-likeness. The word urge from the Greek, parakaleo, means to exhort. It's a strong word. I exhort you uh, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. So Paul is not lacking authority. He's not lacking boldness nor any of these things, and he's not timid. He's not timid, but that's what they're accusing him of being. They discount Paul as ineffectual when present, but only powerful when absent. Yes? It's odd when you think of Paul's history. What he's saying there is that this is the result of Christ. I've become Christ-like in my meekness Mm -hmm. because he was the same guy that went out breathing threats against Christians (laughs) and heaving him into jail. He wasn't afraid of anything at the time. And now he's a Christian, and he's not even within the church now. In his rebukes, he's trying to be as gentle as he possibly can. Right. It's such a dichotomy between the old Paul, who would whack people and throw them into prison, go around mm-hmm. the world trying to kill Christians, and the new Paul that's even within the church trying to save those who are in error. That's very good, very good, uh, Keith. That's exactly right, because before Paul met Christ, he wasn't meek. He was breathing threats against the church. So, so whatever meekness is true about Paul was true because of what Christ had done in him. And so he's trying to handle these people with pastoral care. If you ever get someone who decides they want to have enemy status with you, and I've certainly experienced that a number of times, there isn't anything you can say or do as far as those enemies are concerned that can't be construed to be out of bad motives. Once somebody assumes your motives are bad and they think they know your motives, then whatever you say or do is going to be more proof of how evil you are. That's just what, how enemies treat you when you run into them. And, and this is exactly what's happening to Paul. Whatever he says, whether he writes a strong letter, then that's seen as something he did out of a bad motive. If he comes and he's meek and he's not strong with them, then that's seen be a bad motive. One way or another, they see something wrong in Paul. So 
Paul is going to, he's had enough of this, okay? He's, he's, he's written what he's written, some re- reconciliation, all of the things that are there. Now he's going to deal with it. Now he says, this is the battle. I'm putting up the, I'm putting up the siege ramp. And I'm, I'm going up the, over the walls and I'm going to take captives. And the captives are going to be the ideas of the false teachers. I'm going to pull down these false ideas that these guys have. And that is what the battle is all about. Now, I have some cross-references. Uh, Leif, if you could do Matthew 5.5 5 and Alice, Matthew 11.29, Troy. Okay, this is not so helpful. It says Timothy 3.3. 3. There's two tip. You see which, you, and it may not even be either one. I, I didn't write something down there. James 3.17 for Dick and Larry. Isaiah 42.3 and 4. Paul, you want to do one? Um, Zechariah 9.9. 9. It's 2 Timothy. Okay. Um, okay, Leif, when you're ready. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the gentle. Okay, there's, in the Beatitudes, Paul, Jesus declares that the gentle are blessed. So it's not a um, character flaw to be gentle. By the way, I think we can learn something just about pastoral care from how Paul deals with the Corinthians Everything he's going through here, if you just try to keep the whole scenario in mind. Remember that clip of MacArthur I played about a year ago or two where he was talking about everything they said about Paul, the Corinthians? I mean, they were just trashing him and treating him very badly. And here's a guy who would risk his life so that they could be saved. And a guy who had brought them the gospel of Jesus Christ and who who cared for them tenderly, as he said in 1 Corinthians, and they just keep pounding him and rejecting him and beating him and hating him. And rather than just say, which he easily could have done, he could have said, you know what, Corinth, you want the false teachers? Have them. Let those guys take your money and beat you up. And, go, and he could have just left them, gave up on them. And he didn't because he wanted to salvage a valid gospel-believing church for Achaia there in Corinth, which was a very special place. So he was a, uh, a pastor as well as an apostle in the sense of doing the best work that he can to salvage people for the Lord who could have been, could have been lost. And uh, you can't be a pastor if, if the first thing you're going to do is give up on everybody around you. Um, or get embittered and just leave. In that, in that message that I played here, MacArthur read a letter from a pastor who was resigning and never going to be a pastor again because of how he'd been treated. And it was an interesting letter that MacArthur read. And, and MacArthur's uh, message was pleading for gospel preaching, said, telling, telling the pastors, this was a pastor's conference that I attended in person, telling the pastors that the one privilege you have that's greater than any other privilege that anybody could ever have is the privilege of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't give up. Don't quit. Preach the gospel. And uh, will you be mistreated? Probably, if you do it long enough. 
you're going to find enemies. It's just the way it is. Okay, uh, passage, um, Matthew 11:29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Okay, that's about Jesus. Jesus, gentle and humble. That's what Paul is alluding to. 2 Timothy 3.3. 3. Is this the one about the false teachers you want, or the one about 1 Timothy is the one about elders? Well, let's try elders. Okay, that's 1 Timothy. <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably the one I'm looking for. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from love of money. There we go. Not pugnacious, but gentle. What's pugnacious mean? Ready and willing to fight. <laughs> he's always got the fists up. First, the first inclination is punch somebody and then start talking later. But you're supposed, to be, but an elder is supposed to be gentle. Oh, that is a, yeah. There's a. The question was, what does it say about apologetic groups? Well, there are people who, with computers who are not accountable to any local church. And are definitely pugnacious. And attack, 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 attack. That's the only mode that's known. Okay? It's the Internet. People can do what they want to do. But you can't be an elder that way. And I love apologetics and I love contending for the faith. But I'm also a pastor and I can't be nasty. It's just, it's just not the calling of a pastor to be uh, mean and nasty to people all the time. We've got to just be kind and gentle and loving, realizing that what is at stake is the gospel. And we're contending for the gospel, not about personalities. So, Dick, you had um, James 3.17. Yeah, how's that kind and gentle and loving working for you? What's that? (laughs) Just a smart guy. Or are you making fun of me? I just said, how's that kind and gentle and loving working for you? Okay, okay. yeah. <laughs> Good. Okay, James 3.17. <laughs> James 3.17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. Now, isn't that a good passage? Wisdom from above is gentle, peaceable, full of good fruits, you know, somebody that just can't be anything but angry and, and, and assumes that they're always correct, you've got to wonder if this wisdom is from above, right? And, I'm, and it's not that Paul can't be bold and he's going to be here. He's going to go on the attack, although they, they forced him to. Uh, but his first approach is to be gentle. That's the first thing you do. Okay, the next one is Isaiah 42, 3 and 4. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Okay. That's a messianic prophecy. I think Paul over here has one. Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. 
Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, mm-hmm. even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So these are pa- a lot of these passages are about Christ. And Paul attributed his own meek and gentle be- demeanor to that of Christ because this wasn't how he was before. I'm going to quote Barnett here. In our view, Paul has in mind those Gentile Corinthians who remain enmeshed in the web of sexual immorality of the local cults whom he had admonished earlier in the letter, 6.14 through 7.1. Paul's calling on them to break with their sins once for all. Thus the insiders who belong to the whole body who are being addressed indirectly through these chapters are, one, those who regard Paul as unspiritual and fleshly, and two, the persistently immoral. It's not possible to say how these related to each other or to the faith community as a whole, only that their respective attitudes and behaviors were of concern to the apostle. It does seem likely, however, that the former were critical of Paul's efforts in dealing with the moral problems associated with with the latter during the second visit. Outsiders may also be detected. The flow of the passage makes it clear that Paul is referring to newcomers, the superlative apostles who have come to Corinth, who he addresses as false apostles, whereas he's prepared to show boldness toward insiders who depreciate his spirituality. He declares with the heaviest of irony that he would, would not be so bold as to classify or compare himself with the outsiders who commend themselves and who boast of their ministry, 10, 12 to 13. By these ironic statements, Paul is introducing the signature themes that will soon be developed in the fool's speech, 11, 1 through 12, 13, reaching its plaintive climax, 12, 11, I ought to have been commended by you. I ought to have been commended by you. Um, Keith, what's your saying? What's your... Uh, uh, citation of Mark Twain about taking care of people? He, Mark Twain said that if you take in a dog off the street and feed him and keep him warm, he will not bite you. That's the chief difference between dog and man. <laughs> chief difference between dog and man. The dog won't bite you if you take care of him. So Paul took care of the Corinthians and so they bit him. <laughs> oh boy. That's, that's uh, what happens. Just a couple quick verses here, um, applicable to what we're talking about and to Glenn's comment about apologetics. Um, we're supposed to preach the truth with love, and we're supposed to be wise as serpents and gentle as doves. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm quoting now Garland, when his opponents describe Paul as being humble, they understand it to be a reproach. Humility was an attitude suitable to one who was base, ignoble, and despised, not an attitude of any self-respecting person. This is in the Greek world. Lucian, this is a secular philosopher or writer, wrote, Lucian wrote, quote, The humble-witted are neither sought by their friends nor feared by their enemies, but are ever cringing to the man above. Unquote. Here was the problem. The Corinthians have mistaken Paul's gentleness for timidity, something they regarded as more fitting for one who was servile, demeaned, and abased than the apostle of the exalted Christ. Paul has admitted that the world viewed him as one who was dishonored and of no reputation, 6.8. 
The world's scorn of Christ's apostle has unfortunately permeated this church, imbued as it is with the world's values. They gladly put up with Paul's haughty rivals who would slave them, prey upon them, take advantage of them, lord it over them, and strike them in the face, 1120. Some apparently found this manner of wielding authority, speaking loudly and whacking with a big stick, far more impressive than Paul's humble, timorous attitude. <laughs> well, you know, the, the people will sign up to be beat up. Yeah. I was going to yeah, there's that church out in D.C. I saw, yeah, I was going to mention that one, too. There's a, yeah, um, there's a link. The Washington Post, was it the Washington Post? Ran an article about this church out in D.C. where this pastor has been abusing people for years and years and years. And, and they signed up for more. And uh, just heaping abuse on them and taking their money and... and and living lavish lifestyle and or you forcing kids out of their home if the the kid wanted to leave the church they made them leave the parents kick him out of the yeah home. Th- throwing kids out of their home and, and everything else and people just go back for more and this is what's going on in Corinth that the nasty guys are beating up the Corinthian Christians and then that's fine but Paul he's too timid we're not going to listen to him a glen over here. I must be too pugnacious because if a pastor taught me like that, uh, we'd end up in the street or something. But how do people keep allowing themselves to be tortured like that? Um, I'll tell you, I think here's what the dynamic is. And I think we can read that behind the scenes in Corinthians. They become convinced that some person has a status with God that they don't have. Okay, they, they're, they're like the super apostle. They're, they're, they, they're like the... Uh, Moses or something. And once they think this person has that kind of status, then they think submitting to them is pleasing to God. That's, that's the dynamic. So these people convince people, I am God's man. Don't touch God's anointed. That's me. You say they think they're being pleasing to God. Maybe they're just appeasing him so they don't get more tortured. Well, that could be a big bully. You know, this is how people get in trouble. They get bullied in relationships. And they somehow get controlled. Well, they do get bullied and they do get controlled, but the, they still think that, they think that the fear factor is that if I don't do this, God's going to be displeased with me. They literally think God is pleased with them submitting to that kind of abuse. Well, there may be, but I know that factor is there. And every once in a while, the whole house of cards will come down when it turns out the emperor has no clothes. Then everybody just will go all at once because, oh, this guy's not Moses. He's just a sinner. Okay, go ahead. You know, Paul said in a couple of other places in light of the subject we're talking about, uh, he talks about in Galatians, you know, have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? But uh, in Corinthians, he also says, no doubt there has to be differences among us to show which of you have God's approval. Uh huh. And how do, you, how do you rightly divide that in light of what we're... Well... The, the test about who really has God's approval is ultimately the gospel itself. Because that was, go back to 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, and you can see behind the scenes what's going on. They are loving things like the Greeks love wisdom and the Jews signs, but Paul offered the gospel of Christ crucified. And then, um, 
if you read 1 Corinthians 2, there's some irony going on there which causes people to misinterpret it. In 1 Corinthians 2, Paul talks about who's spiritual. The, the, the pneumatikos, the spiritual ones, were the false teachers. And Paul takes their own word, pneumatikos, and defines it differently and applies it to the people who are willing to submit to the gospel. Okay? In the, the whole question of what, what he's saying, talking about this abusive nature of the other guys, yeah. it gets back to the mediators. Because if I believe a person is mediating between me and God, that's a huge, in his words, when would have authority, that's a huge potential for abuse. And uh-huh. that's what's being claimed by these people. Mm-hmm. And Paul eventually makes the claim that he saw Jesus Christ. He's an apostle, a true apostle, not because of what he feels or because even of what his, his, they're judging him about, but mm-hmm. he is an apostle objectively because he saw the risen Lord and he was given authority to mediate the gospel and give it to them on behalf of Christ. Mm-hmm. And the false apostles, the super apostles, don't have that authority, they don't have but they're it. pretending. Right. And if I pretend and I believe that you have that authority... I will follow you as unto God, ultimately to damnation. And they may be offering things. A true um, minister of Christ is always a gospel-centric person. The one thing that we have to offer is the gospel, and that's free. And I can't take it away from you. I didn't give it to you. Christ did. And if you have it, you have everything. But these false apostles were always offering something else, some higher-order spiritual experience, wealth, elite status. They're offering something, but it's not the gospel. Yes? Were, uh, were these super apostles homegrown? Did they come out of Corinth? Um, that's, How much do no, we know about them? Both. Both. That's a good question, Lawrence, and, and I should have made that clear because that's what Barnett was talking about. From reading between the lines and reading what it does say, there were some insiders and some outsiders that were both opponents of Paul. The outsiders were coming in to Corinth to attack Paul's message, and they had some allies on the inside. So it's both. I would say the other thing with the false apostles is the same concept of the abuse, is that the false ones are trying to build a false assurance, and you want to have assurance of what Christ has done or what your status with God. So the, the false ones are building false assurance, Mm-hmm. And the true ones are giving true assurance, but the true assurance isn't dependent on them. The true assurance is dependent on Christ, whereas the false assurance is dependent on this other person. Yeah, if you stay right with me, then you're right with God. That's their message. Now, you can now let's uh, think about it. The just the history of this sort of thing happening. It's, it happens over and over again. What does it say? And we should know it's going to happen because we're warned about it in the Bible. The warnings in Deuteronomy about false prophets. Okay, in Deuteronomy 18, in Matthew 24. And what does it say not to do? It says, do not fear them. Do not fear them. Okay, why? Because they peddle fear. They're going to say, you're going to be cursed. I, I have been cursed myself. I've been, I've been someone actually prophesied that I was going to die within nine months prophesied to me, thus saith the Lord, thou art about to be removed from the face of the earth. That was, that was prophesied to me. Uh, that was in 1989. <laughs> yeah, that was 1989. And at the time, 
because there was a time frame in there, I said, all right, I'll wait. <laughs> but, uh, um, the, but, you have to, but the reason I don't fear those things is because I don't have the gospel. And the gospel tells me I'm right with God through Jesus Christ. And they can say or do whatever they want. I mean, they can even kill the body. It says, Jesus said, don't fear the ones that can kill the body. Because the gospel is what we have, but they can't take that away from us. Yeah, I'm going to talk about that by sermon. Go ahead, Nicole. I just wanted to make a quick comment about um, people who go attend churches where the pastor is real abusive like that. I was involved in a church like that about seven or eight years ago. It, it seems like just yesterday uh, that I was involved in this church. And anyway, you were talking about false assurance. And I was there for about a year and a half, and I, I, as I started seeing things on the upper level of how abusive things were, I started going, why are people here for this? And I realized that those who stay in that situation, it's like a mutual exploitation. The pastor's looking for power. The people are looking for assurance. And if he's their mediator... It's right there in front of them. They can see, touch, and hear A tangible him. They don't have to have their own relationship with Christ and search the scriptures for themselves. Yeah. And so it's, it's mutual exploitation, and it's sin on both parts, even though the pastor is going to be held more accountable. But yeah, the, the leaders are more accountable, and, and people need to flee from those kind of situations. Okay? Then we'll go to a, the next verse here. I'm reading a book right now that was written about 1921, talking about the change in modernism and liberalism in the, in the world at the time, as far as when I say liberalism, I mean the liberalism in theology. And you, what you say is right when you say, if I have the gospel, we can see how you're protected from that. But there's so many more complicated gospels out there today. <laughs> I know. Because, <laughs> see, the gospel is a worldview that begins like a seed it affects everything you do, even on to government. So, and what's happening is there's so many man-centered gospels today. It radically changes the way you think about things and the way you execute about things. Absolutely. It's You've a worldview issue. you got to have the one gospel. Like, I mean, Big Evangelical died recently in the last year. And he went to his grave saying that the true gospel was a heresy. Hmm. Yep. Well, okay, the God, remember what Paul said in Philippians. This is, a, this is a good way to just analyze things. He said some pe- people are preaching Christ out of envy and some out of vainglory, I think he said, selfish ambition. He says, but nevertheless, I rejoice that Christ is preached. All right? He's not endorsing bad attitudes. But if, you, if the person is actually preaching the gospel, then God can use that. All right? Now, you can have the nicest, wonderful guy in the whole world who looks charming, who wouldn't hurt a flea, it seems. And, and if he has, it's not preaching Christ, he can't do you any good. And if he's preaching something other than Christ in the name of Christ, he's damning you because he's making you think you're getting the gospel when you're not. And so... I, oh, I, I like to say it that way. Paul said it that way. Preach Christ. Preach Christ. And Paul said we don't preach ourselves. We preach Christ and him crucified. Jesus is Lord. Um, and the, the gospel is about Jesus Christ. It's not about a preacher. It's about who Jesus is. 
And that's why I use that outline just to keep me honest. I, uh, because I have to preach Christ. And, and the, the outline is who, who Jesus is, what he did, why we need him, and what he expects of us. It's impossible to follow that without preaching Christ. Because it's about Christ. It's not about a religious movement. It's not about a preacher. It's not about joining a church. It's not about being more pious than somebody down the street or getting in contact with the spirit world or learning how to be a neo-pagan or all these things that are popular now. It's about Christ. Now, it's very simple, but you spend the rest of your life learning about it. Yeah. And, and that's the concept of exactly what's happening here. People are, the super apostles are preaching themselves, and this is the closest that Paul comes to preaching himself. And even now he's doing it in a Christ-centric way. Paul is forced to preach about himself, and so that's why he calls it the fool speech. (laughs) Paul resists, resists, resists. I'm not going to give, I don't want to do this. And finally, the only course of action left to Paul is to tell about his own visions so that he can show that he can even stand up to these guys who claim they have visions. And then when he does it, he calls himself a fool. And then after he tells about it, he tells the fact that he got a thorn in the flesh because of the vision and that he's going to have to live with because God won't take it away. So if you want visions, I'd highly recommend against it. (laughs) If it's a valid one, it's not good. You'll have to have a thorn in the flesh. So uh, just have the gospel. Preach Christ. Verse 2, I ask that when I'm present, I need not be bold. Okay, there's that word from verse 1. Um, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. Now, here's another clue. Isn't this mind-boggling that the people would think that Paul is not spiritual enough for them? The apostle that brought them the gospel, the apostle who saw the risen Lord, as he said in 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Corinthians 9, the apostle who, who has not shown any uh, sign of abusing them. In fact, because the Corinthians were so like they are, Paul worked as a tent maker so that he wouldn't have to ask them for any support because if, if he got one penny from them, they'd be sure he was just after their money. And here he is saying, they regard me as if I, if I walk in the flesh. In a, in a sinful way or a wrong way, that he's just merely a fleshly guy, not a spiritual one. Paul uh, prefers gentleness. He prefers gentleness if it'll get the job done. But if he has to, he'll be bold when he comes. He'll do what he has to do. So he's, he doesn't want to. He sent the bold letter because he'd rather come in gentleness. Listen to the letter, then you get gentle Paul. You don't listen to the letter, you get bold Paul. <laughs> And he'll put up, the, put up the rampart, tear down the strongholds, and t- have a warfare, and take captives. <laughs> and the battle is going to be for thoughts and, and the thoughts of, our mind, of the mind. So I need not be bold with confidence. Um, the, there's a little different Greek here. I propose to be. The literally says in the aorist infinitive, I reason to dare. I reason to dare, uh, be uh, courageous. I reason to dare against those who regard, another word for thinking, reasoning. The whole issue here is going to be um, about ideas, by the way. 
logizomai, regard, to reason, to reckon. It's used twice in the sentence, once of Paul, I reason, logizomai, and those who reckon. So one of them, uh, his opponents are thinking wrongly, and so there's going to be a battle of ideas here. As if we walked according to the flesh. Earlier, Paul defended himself against this charge and defended against the fact that he changed his travel plans and so on and defended his message in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, defended the gospel and so on. But the opponents keep up their attack. You know, uh, there's always going to be someone who come along claiming superior spirituality than ordinary Christians, right? And that is, a, that is a deceit that has captivated more Christians probably than just about any other idea. In fact, if you look at the history of church, if you look at monasticism, you look at the priesthood in the Roman Catholic Church, you have a whole history of people claiming superior status over other Christians, all right? That is always wrong. I wrote an article about it once, and the first line of the article was, there are no extraordinary Christians, but being an ordinary Christian is an extraordinary thing. <laughs> okay? <laughs> that, remember that much. Because I'm telling you that when we appear before the judgment seat of Christ, there's nobody going to be going there saying, okay, Christ, here I am. I don't, I don't think so. We're going to be falling down before him saying, oh, you're so merciful to me. You're so merciful to me. Every one of us. Everyone. Absolutely. The greatest apostle will fall down before Christ and thank him for his mercy. Nobody's going to be standing there talking about their status. Actually, just one, uh, one Matthew 7 talks about people that's going to talk about their status. They'll stand in front of them and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this and didn't we do that and didn't <laughs> yeah. we do that and that's do a, miracles? And he, and <laughs> that's a bad thing. Yeah. In that day, they're saying, Lord, Lord, look what I did. Uh, no true Christian will do that. That's like the little test that some of our street evangelists have used, I think, where they go out on the street and they ask the person, are you a good person? It's the simplest test in the whole world because the Christian will say no. <laughs> or they'll qualify it. If you run into a Christian and they say, well, God's been merciful to me. Because Christians know the gospel says there's none good but God. Right? But the non-Christian will always believe himself to be a good person. And um, Cross TV had a video where they actually went in and interviewed heinous criminals that had done some of the worst crimes imaginable that were locked up in prison and asked them if they thought they were good people, and they all said yes. <laughs> you know, well, I only murdered three. There's another guy down here who murdered four, so I'm not so bad. And they made that video to show how sin deludes us. But when we see the truth of the gospel, we can't feel like we have any status because we, know we're, we really know we're sinful. And when Paul said that he considered himself a chief of sinners, he wasn't being melodramatic. 
That's how he understood himself. Yes. I just want to mention when he mentioned the um, I never knew you verse, it has a tendency to be a man-centered gospel where you're taking credit for yeah. what's happened. Right. And you're stealing God. You're robbing God of his glory. Amen. See, that's what's out there today. It's I know. It's a man-centered gospel. That's why we preach the five solas of the Reformation. The fifth sola is to the glory of God alone. To the glory of God alone. Anything that detracts from that you can count on is not gospel. <laughs> yeah. I love that First Corinthians chapter 1 where it says, See, you're calling, brother, not many wise, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of this mm-hmm. world so that no flesh would boast in his presence or glory in his presence. Absolutely. And what Paul is claiming in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 is that there's, a, there's an assurance that's going to keep us in our place. And it's because the message he gave us to preach is Christ crucified, and nobody's going to like that message. The Jews don't like it because they didn't want their uh, cursed as he who hangs on a tree. They don't want a crucified Messiah. And the Greeks don't like it because they think it's a stupid idea. Literally. Paul preached it in Athens and they, they mocked him. The resurrection from the dead? A cru- okay, so, okay, Paul, here's what you're telling me. I'm a noble-minded Greek philosopher, a sophist, with an eloquent message, and you're telling me that unless I believe in a crucified Jewish Messiah, I'm going to go to hell? <laughs> pretty much, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yes, pretty much, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> and the, so by, because Paul had to preach that, it was guaranteed that he's going to get rejected everywhere he goes. Do we, do we need to preach anything less today? It's just what it is. It is what it is. And so because the gospel is what it is, nobody's going to get rich off of it if they keep it right. Nobody's going to gain status in the world from the gospel if they keep it right. No, we don't have to make it relevant. Good point. Troy, let me tell you a story about that out of seminary. I was sitting in a seminary class where they were talking about relevance. And the way they were discussing it was... You need to find out what questions people are asking before you write your theology. Okay? And this was from Paul Tillich. And I, I'm not saying my professor necessarily agree with Tillich, but that was Tillich's big, one of his main things. And so you have to, uh, if people aren't asking questions about what you want to teach, then you're teaching the wrong thing. You need to find out what they want to hear and what questions they have and what's relevant to them. And then you take that over into the seeker idea, out of just the theological area, but then in missiology, as they call it, same idea. What's relevant? So after I listened for a while, I stuck my hand up. They always knew trouble's coming. Dwayne's his hand up. And I said this. According to our own theology, isn't it true that there is a final judgment after we die? Uh, Yeah. And according to our own belief system, everybody is going to have to face that judgment, no matter who they are. Yeah. And isn't it true that unless we repent and believe the gospel, we shall be damned at that judgment? Yep. So exactly how is that irrelevant to somebody? That's what I said in class. How can it be irrelevant? 
It's by the very nature. It's ontologically relevant. <laughs> if I could use a, 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 something out of the seminary, that means according to the order of being. Humans, humans are all in a situation where the gospel is the most relevant thing they could ever hear. Whether they think it is or not, it's not the issue. So it can't be irrelevant. cannot be irrelevant. If there is a heaven, if there's a hell, if there's a final judgment, and everybody is going to go either to heaven or to hell, then where they end up is always relevant. Nothing could be more relevant. I, I, that's it. That's it. You guys get it. I appreciate that. Now go tell Joel Osteen. <laughs> Let's go to verse 3, because I want to conclude this thing about the flesh. Now, Paul's going to take the term, their term, flesh, that they apply to Paul. Okay, Paul, you walk according to the flesh. In other words, you're just an ordinary guy, and you're not very spiritual. You're not, uh, you're not spiritual. So that's, that's what they're saying about Paul. And then Paul will admit to one thing. He says, though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Now, he's taking the term flesh... And changing the meaning, okay? And so flesh has a range of meanings in the Bible. The first usage would be in a sense of being unspiritual, being fleshly in that sense. The second one means I'm in a body. I'm just walking around in the flesh, sarts. And then he says, but I don't war according to the flesh. Now he's back to the previous meaning. <laughs> I don't war in a spiritually fleshly way. I war in a mighty way with weapons that are not of the flesh, he says in verse 4. So back to the fallen sinful human. I do not war according to being a fallen sinful human. In the context, this would mean to use cunning or deception or invalid means to discredit his opponents, which is what they're doing to Paul. So Paul is not there. They're using fleshly means to discredit Paul. He's not going to do that. He's going to use a different means, and he's going to tear down reasonings, speculations, and ideas that are holding people captive and keeping them from the gospel. Now, I had a citation here. This is from uh, David Garland. Quote, he has an arsenal of powerful divine weapons at his disposal. And what follows, Paul appeals to three stages of the campaign in ancient siege warfare. And then there's a Greek word for that. Destroying defensive fortifications, taking captives, and punishing resistance when the city is finally brought to submission. Those, are, those, those things that he talks about are right out of a literal siege of a city. He has referred previously to the power of God working through him with weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, 2 Corinthians 6, 7. From references elsewhere in the Corinthian correspondence, we can assume that he has in view the truth of the gospel epitomized in the word of the cross. That's what we were just talking about. And the knowledge of God. Other spiritual weapons referred to in the New Testament, such as prayer, divine wisdom, and holy contact, Conduct could also be assumed to be part of his arsenal. When Paul talks about warfare, he's always back to the gospel. In, in Ephesians 6, when he talks about the armor of God, every piece of the armor is an aspect of gospel truth. 
the helmet of salvation, breastplate of righteousness, gird with truth. This is gospel. The battle's for the gospel. That's the battle, and it shall be the battle. And it's not going to change. That's that's the issue. That's the where the attack lies. Why? Why is that the battle? Well, let's look at it at a spiritual level. We've been looking at it at a human level of his opponents, but there is a spiritual world, and there are spirits that are behind deception. Because earlier in, in 2 Corinthians, Paul said that the God of this world blinds people lest they see the gospel. They're blinded by Satan so that they don't see the gospel. So what does Paul do? He preaches the gospel. That's, that's what we've got to do. If God is going to call anybody out of it, according to 1 Corinthians 1, it's going to be through the gospel. But So remember that sermon, uh, if you were here when I was in Luke 13, about the woman being bound by Satan who was loosed on Sabbath? Remember that? And then at the end of that little pericope, that's a, you know, like a story, a section that's a continuous story, at the end of the pericope was... The kingdom of God is like the mustard seed, and the kingdom of God is like yeast. And the implication is the way Satan's kingdom is being plundered is by people being taken out of it one soul at a time. Okay? One soul at a time. Sometimes people, we get criticized, you know, the emergent church says, well, you, the, the evangelicals are too individualistic. You're always talking about personal salvation, and they, they mock that idea. Uh, we, well, there's a reason why historically evangelicals talk about personal salvation, because the liberals attacked the idea and suggested that heaven and hell weren't the issue, but how we can make the world a better place to live in. And so rather than persons being saved... You have society of being bettered. And so in the 20th century, evangelicals had put this term in there, personal salvation, but there was a good reason for the term, to, to stave off this, the liberalism, the social gospel. Now, ultimately, salvation is personal. When we stand, it says in, in, in 2 Corinthians 5 that we saw earlier, that, that we st- each one of us has to stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for, for, their, for their deeds, right? This, there's no group that's going to be able to do me any good on that day, all right? So the kingdom of God grows one soul at a time. That doesn't mean like it acts where several thousand are added in one day, but each one of those is a person, and each of those persons heard the gospel, and each of those persons repented, and each of the persons is baptized. Okay? So the way to plunder Satan's kingdom is through gospel preaching. That's how the kingdom grows. So is it any surprise that spiritual warfare is warfare against the gospel? Of course not. Satan is not dumb. He knows the only thing that can plunder his kingdom is the gospel. So that's where you wage the war. Anything to divert from it. Anything to water it down. Paul has been talking about that all the way through 2 Corinthians. Not adulterating the Word of God. Okay? You can take the Word and pollute it by adding something else to it. Not hiding it. We have it hidden. We've renounced the hidden things because of shame. But commending ourselves, every man's conscious in the sight of God. What we say is open. What we say is clear. And we continue to say it. And we continue to preach it. Because that's where the battle lies. Mute it, 
diffuse it, adulterate it, hide it, change it, get it off of the agenda, anything like that, great, Satan's happy. But if the gospel is preached front and center again and again and again, God is going to use it. Why, why, why preach anything else? What, what else is going to do anybody any good? And then teach the whole counsel of God so that people grow in the grace and knowledge of, of the Lord. So we don't war according to the flesh. He, he admits to the charge but changes the meaning of flesh to ordinary human existence. And yes, earlier Paul said our outward man is decaying, <laughs> but the inner man is being renewed. And his military metaphors will convince the Corinthians that he is not timid before his opponents. Okay, you guys, I tried, I tried, I tried. Now we're going to have the battle. Get ready for the siege, and we're going to take prisoners. (laughs) Quoting Paul. (laughs) We're going to take prisoners. We're going to take every thought captive. So uh, next week we'll start with the siege in verse 4 and see what it's about. Thank you for sharing in the gospel with us. God bless. And today, by the way, we have a meal after church, Thanksgiving meal. And see you upstairs at 1030.